last year we introduced the idea of film and television. Um, seeing what's going on out in the world with uh, all, certainly all the cable networks and Hulu and Netflix and whatnot and content coming out of tech companies. Um, there's a whole, the programming's wide open and some of these some of these TV shows have a nine-hour movie as you heard Tom Holkenberg talk about uh, The Handmaid's Tale this morning. And um, about three weeks ago, I was doing an interview with Mark Isham um, for Mix that's going to be coming up. And he began with Never Cry Wolf, with Carol Ballard, correct? And worked, not knowing a thing about film scoring, a music player, composer, trumpet. He wanted to enter this world. And he fell into a wonderful director and fell into film. And, um, and then he goes out and in the last five to ten years has brought t television and a lot of network television into his, uh, his repertoire. And so the merging of the art, the techniques, and the tools is real. And after doing an hour-long interview on the phone, I just said, would you like to come to my event, please? Um, and he's here today with Jason LaRocca, who's been his partner in crime for I don't know, how long? As a mixer, probably eight years or so. Eight years, yeah. As, as well, a friend and assistant for about 35, 40 years. Yeah, um, <laughs> And that's a lot of what this world is about. I mean, those relationships that develop over time. So without further ado, Stephen, take it away. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Mark and Jason, thank you so much for being here. By the way, the names are on the other side of the chair. No, no, it's fine. You don't have to move. Just so you, if you didn't know, but uh, I think we know. So, um, and again, this is another situation where I don't have huge, wonderful, important questions. Uh, just kind of follow the flow because these gentlemen, as Tommy said, have worked together for many, many years. And um, I'm sure they have a lot to share and we'll, we'll leave, certainly leave some room for uh, Q&A and questions and answers uh, that I know is, um, will be important. So uh, just to start off, I think it's maybe appropriate to just open the conversation with a uh, recent project and what you're working on and just maybe that experience. And I hear that it's a, um, a TV show live orchestra recording, which again, we were talking about earlier that it's a bit unique with how budgets and, and things constraining us. So um, whoever would like to kind of kick off just what's happening, uh, you know, right now for you guys. Yeah, well, there's there's a show that's in its seventh season that we're um, that we're working on called uh, Once Upon a Time. That's for ABC, and uh, we just started the first episode last week, and then we have um, another show for ABC, a Marvel show that is. Um, I don't know if we're allowed to say the name of it yet, though. Can we say yes, the name? Yes, you can. It's uh, Cloak and Dagger, and um, that's another show that we're scoring for ABC. And this is on top of, of course, you know two or three usually movie projects at the same time. And I just heard yesterday that you're also doing an Amazon show that I'm supposed to mix in three weeks. <laughs> That's correct. <yes. laughs> Which I just, I, I got a text at midnight. <laughs> oh, we forgot to tell you, we also need to do an Amazon show. It's like, cool, great. <laughs> it's the, the uh, Philip K. Dick Electric Dreams. I've just been handed two episodes of that. That's amazing. And one of them is with BT, so that'll be kind of fun. Oh, that was that. Okay, yeah. cool. You did mention that a while ago. Yeah. Okay. So it's actually happening. It's, it's actually happening. <laughs> the deadlines have arrived. Yeah. So and, then and then before that, just, I mean, the last big film we finished was a uh, animated film, the first time that I've actually done a fully animated film. And that was, so that was a unique experience after the, which this, it's called Duck, Duck, Goose, and it will be coming out next year. Fantastic. So it sounds like it leads me to the question, you are 
both very busy. How does that work with your workflow and team that you've built? Um, well, uh, for, for television, I, I put together a team for each show, basically. Um, although Jason is, is sort of sits right next to me and does everything. <laughs> um, a number of years ago, I put a mixing studio in my home. And uh, I basically, I just said, Jason, I'd like you to learn this room and help me build it out and help me make it actually really work really well, which he's done. I think you're reasonably comfortable there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a giant theater, which is it's beautiful. Yes. I believe that. Yeah. Yes. So that so that's that helps me a lot. Just just the sheer practicality of that. If I'm writing, I can then jump out for 45 minutes and listen to mixes. And it was purely a shellfish practical reason, but it really it's it's also just a lot of fun to have that facility. And can you talk about just a little more nuts and bolts of? how you write, I mean, but you've got so many things, I know they might be all different, but your, your workflow, your writing workflow, and how that gets to Jason, is it kind of write, write sample, mix, handoff, write, or is it, it, it you know? It sort of depends on the, on the genre. And by, by that I mean, is it fully uh, organic, and, and is every sound you're gonna hear have to be recorded by Jason? Is it one end of the spectrum? The other end of the spectrum is every sound that you're gonna hear comes out of my computer. And then there's, various different balances in between. If it all comes out of the computer, it's very much in-house, just me, uh, my recording assistant, and Jason work out the template, and it's, it just stays right, right, at, right at home. And what's your <laughs> sequencer of choice currently? I've uh, been with Logic since day one, okay. and okay. Uh, I'm scared to death of Logic 10, but it's gonna have to, <laughs> I'm gonna have to confront it, I guess, this year. <laughs> one of the interesting things, too, is that uh, a lot of the time with Mark's process is it's, you know, he writes in Logic and has his Logic template. And then he has, like he was mentioning, somebody who takes all that. That's uh, Tyler Parkinson, is his tech, who basically takes all that stuff and puts it into Pro Tools for me as a process. So every time, everything Mark does, usually we mix in Pro Tools. So right. we have a process where we take all that stuff right. out of mm -hmm. Logic and we put it into Pro Tools. Mm -hmm. So whether it's an all-in-the-box just synth score or something that we do go and record at a stage, mm -hmm. it's always a process of taking it out of Logic and, and into Pro Tools, and that's how we usually end up is in Pro Tools as right. our final destination. Yeah, pretty sense. much it, nothing stays in Logic once it leaves me. Sure. Because Logic is, is very good at what it does and very bad at what it doesn't do. And so once we need to do those other things, it needs to be in Pro Tools. Right. <laughs> we did one thing, actually, in Logic. We did the, we did the pilot of Once Upon a Time, did we really? In, what in were we Logic, <laughs> in stereo, and it, I, took, I think it took us like two or three days to do, but because, <laughs> because we didn't even have the time really to get it out of Logic and into Pro Tools, we actually just mixed it straight into Logic um, and then just printed, you know, stereo mixes. Yeah. It was a pilot. We ended up actually completely, you know, re-recording and, and mixing everything, but for the pilot mix, we actually did it. That was the one thing we did that way. So since you uh, have so many things going and juggling so many things on your plates, um, as we talked earlier, how does how is the television and film world balance with you or different or different challenges or is it it's all movie music and it's all music <laughs> and it's all emotional and it all does what it's supposed to do and it doesn't really matter that much. Um, 
well, the, the differences. Well, the really, really the latter for me. Well, I, I did a few television themes many, many years ago, and, and I wrote the theme and then just passed it on and someone else did the show and I never looked back. And then I stopped doing that and just concentrated on film. And then about seven years ago, Don Solaire, the vice president of music at ABC, called me up and said, can I entice you back into television? I have this show I think you would love. And it was Once Upon a Time, and I did, and I loved the guys. And so I just said to her, but like, I just want to do this like I would do it a film, because I think it's Disney, it's those characters, and they've all been film characters, and we should just keep going like that. And so I've just kept our same film production line. We've gotten very fast. <laughs> We've gotten very efficient because you don't have a lot of time and you certainly don't have the budget. But we've been doing this long enough now and we're good enough at just the process that we can do you know, 25 to 30 minutes of original music every week with an orchestra and get it orchestrated and copied and on the stage and recorded and mixed. And I mean, sometimes there's Brad Dector, who's Mark's orchestrator, is actually orchestrating cues like within minutes sometimes before we actually get to the stage with them. I and mean, just because the turnaround is so fast on TV on top of other things that we're doing. But one of the nice things about it actually is that because of the intense uh, production turnaround on Once Upon a Time, it actually keeps us really, really efficient with the other things that we're doing. So like if we're doing a movie around that or, you know, whatever we're doing you know, before or after the TV show, we're just kind of always in the same groove, always doing the same sort of thing. You know, when Mark's done writing, it goes to Tyler and he puts it into Pro Tools and Brad Dector orchestrates it and we're like ready for the stage and there's no glitches. So that is one of the nice things about kind of always having this ongoing TV, which has been a successful show and that's that's great. Obviously, we didn't think that would happen necessarily at first, but that's been a nice byproduct mm -hmm. of it. So this is your basic team. It doesn't expand or contract usually. It can. Uh, it can. It, it contracts. I mean, it, ex it doesn't contract. It's basically, right. there's, there's a core group which is always there, always working. Um, it can expand if, you know, we get a note two hours before recording time. Right. And, <laughs> and the copy department has to call in five other people. And it, the, the last people on the assembly line sometimes have to, have to man up and get more bodies in the shop just to cover the, the time factor. Yeah. And actually there was, an, there was a musical episode actually of Once Upon a Time uh, last season too where we had songs obviously in, in the show but then, you know, Mark's score as well. And we had to mix all of that um, by the same deadline which was basically a day after we recorded it. So we actually had to mix the songs and mix the score at the same time. So we had one engineer in another studio doing the score and then one engineer doing the songs and another. So we had both uh, two different production lines basically right. going at the same time to meet the deadline essentially, right. which happens on films too. I mean, you know, happens on everything, but obviously it expands when it needs to. And we have those sort of studios and, and engineers lined up and ready to go for when that does happen. And it does. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, something we were, we've been talking about all day is the, relationship between music and the sound, sound department, sound designers, and, and how we, they've collaborated and maybe not sometimes, but we found that today as a, one of the key languages is collaboration with sound and how important it is. And the technology now, or for the past many years, has allowed for that in an easier way. But um, my continual question is, is 
well, to you guys is how much do you consider that element of working with the sound department? Do you, are you able to send them demos or things like that? And my guess, not to put words in your mouth, is that it's a function of time and TV shows are a very fast schedule, maybe only on features. But do you have any direct experience that you can share with us with working with sound designer, sound people, sound department, if you will? Yeah, I can, I can say that, project? that 20 years ago, I got side sideswiped, bushwhacked, whatever the right word would be, <laughs> on a film where I wasn't informed that the sound design was going to be as intense as it was. The director just sort of never mentioned it. <laughs> and I never was getting, de- when I was getting the film to work on, I, it, and so I had done all this stuff with, with noises and all sorts of great samples and stuff like that. And I go to a playback and half of it is just gone because of the sound department. And the director had decided he wanted, that's what he wanted. And I talked to him about it after we, and he said, yeah, it was like a battle on the stage. You know, you have two, all the time you had two things, two people doing the same job. So I just made it a policy from then on that I just find out, you know, what's your concept? How much sound design is it going to be? What's it going to accomplish when, when the explosion happens? I'm, should I just, I'm just going to get out of the way. Is that okay? Or do you want just a low pad or something but let's talk about it let's talk about it just get it very clear and it's i've never had that problem since so it's it's about the communication and it's about the understanding and understanding that sound design is a huge huge part of modern filmmaking and uh most films are dubbed by the sound designers so what yeah. else can I say? <laughs> well, and like, and like you mentioned, too, that the sound design is changing. And so you might think for five weeks while you're scoring the thing that this is the way the sound design is going to be. And then when you get to the dub stage, sometimes it changes. There was, I think, um, on The Mechanic, a film that we did uh, recently where the foghorn coming from this ship that Jason Stable was on was in the wrong key. And it was <laughs> blasting right over <laughs> a really big orchestral moment. And I think we ended up winning because we had already recorded it. Yeah. And we actually <laughs> told them to change the, the pitch of the foghorn so that it worked. But it's things like that where, you know, if somebody's not paying attention to that and thinks, oh, well, we'll just get a new foghorn sound to the, the day of the you know, final day of the dub and suddenly now it's a half step above, you know, the cellos, that could be a total bummer, you know. So it's definitely one of those things that's it's communication and it's constant too, where it's just, you know, you get to the theater and watch the film when it's out and you realize they changed it again. You're like, what the heck is going on? So it, it is what definitely, but I think overall, you know, sound, certainly when it's action, in some ways should win. You know, it, it should be doing what it needs to do and music should be doing what it needs to do. And, you know, if you're if you've got tons of car crashes going on, there's no point in trying to put, you know, a bunch of you know low sounding instruments that you're not even going to hear playing melodies. You're going to put stuff at the top where you might actually have some room. So it's definitely a constant battle. Even on Once Upon a Time, which is you know, all about magic and traveling to different realms, and so there's all these special effects of what it what's the sound of moving into Wonderland and what's the sound of going to the Enchanted Forest, and there's always these sounds became very apparent that that's something that even with the limited time we had, we had to discuss. And so when I spot the episode, I'll call the post, I'll, we'll see these things and I'll call the post soup and just say, all right, are these temp effects pretty close or can you follow my lead? Can I send you the demo? But it's all about just discussing and communication. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's perfect. That's what we've 
has become apparent all day really is this communication and asking those questions and you know and i think this is something that composers didn't it wasn't done that much i think in the past so to speak and i think it's it's an important uh you know development that we're all becoming well i think music has become highly highly technical you know when i when i got into this business very few people made high quality demos you know i was one of the young guys who was working in electronic music so this my demos were like the backbone of what he was going to get at the end result. So he could come to the studio and just look at my demos, my, which was basically my first pass. But most guys are with a paper and pencil on the piano at home. You know, then it got to the point where John Williams is the only guy that wasn't making demos. And now John even has to have someone come and demo his scores because it's just, that's it. And your demos are so good, they could go on the stage if they had to. So it's in the 20 odd years I've been doing this, that's been a huge shift. The music is very technical, and a composer's job, you better be a pretty good engineer. You, you wear many hats, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's something, too, actually, that's pretty interesting, is that Mark is a really good engineer. And I think with a lot of composers that I work with, uh, you know, Mark and others, a lot of the time that is a necessity because like Mark's saying, that you have to make a demo that's really, really great. And a lot of the times it's temped with music that's already been recorded, it's already been mastered, it's already got full Recorded at air with $2 million? With, <laughs> with, with whatever. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, yeah, usually. I mean, with like, with the, with the television show, you know, they'll, there'll be a dragon fighting scene and it, it'll be, you know, uh, Batman or something like that and it'll be something just massive. And so the demos you know, have to come somewhere close to that just to sell it, you know, and then when we record it with the orchestra, we're only halfway there because we've only got 30 players, you know, so we have to somehow fill in the other 70, <laughs> you know, so we do that with samples and, you know, we'll use, uh, you know, certain samples to help fill it all in and, you know, make it just sound believable and we've gotten pretty good at that process. But the whole time, it's just, it, you're always up against, you know, the the status quo is like, it's it's up here with everything. And, you know, so, and guys with samples now are killing it. I mean, they're doing amazing, I mean, with orchestral samples, you know, I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. Because sometimes they don't have the budget or good. the time to record yeah. an orchestra. Yeah. So they get really, really good at, at, at making that work as their, you know, as their thing. So... You know, you definitely have to be at least that good. Yeah, yeah the, the bar is <laughs> up least, there for, the, for, the, for that. Um, uh, something that we touched on, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but just a touch of the temp score that was brought up earlier, of course, in other panels. But how does that, uh, do you often, uh, if you know you're going into a project and it's temped or going to be temped or something earlier on, maybe a feature, I don't know, well, television as well, the editors usually temp stuff, but uh, do you tend to not, generally want the music editor or film editor to use your music if there's a choice or does it matter or you or and how does that do you how do you find uh, everyone's gonna you've been asked this question hundreds of times about temp scores and how they you you take it or leave it or influence you but just a bit maybe about that well once upon a there's a spectrum here once upon a time is probably at the far end of the spectrum where we've been doing it for seven years there's a great library of stuff and and they can put together a temp that's pretty great even thematically correct. When Cinderella comes on the screen, there's her theme, you know. Um, and that's very helpful. 
that does help us. It, it helps sell the network cut to the network. Uh, it's a very, and then when they do throw the Batman cue, it really seems sort of out of place. And we know that we have to really, you know, gird our loins and, and go in swinging <laughs> for that cue because because now the network expects that kind of quality and that kind of size. The other end of the spectrum is, you know, like an art film or something will come in and the director says, I just want what you think should be great. <laughs> and how often? <laughs> they do come do along. Get they do come along. And so in that case, I will usually take my first pass. But I can tell pretty quickly that if there's some temp love going on here. If that first pass is like, oh, I'm not quite sure if you're duplicating what I will. Then show me what you've been listening to for the last five months and let's start from there. It, it's a great tool if it's used correctly, I think. Directors do love their temp, though. Yes, that does, <laughs> that does happen. It can get pretty dangerous sometimes. So uh, anything else that I could uh, glean from both of you uh, that is um, current, looking ahead. We just came off a panel of, I don't know if you caught some of the virtual reality stuff and, and VR and game music, mm. uh, but current future trends and music. Right. Do you just see, even have an opinion about it, whether you are working or not in other fields, but just curious to know what your take is on uh, where things are going, if you will. Well, Music you, you mentioned media. games. Um, a number of years ago, I went up, and I've signed all sorts of NDAs, so I'll just keep it vague, but and talked with a big game developer about doing something where the music could actually be controlled by the choices the player makes to, to an intricate sound. I mean, you could start to shape emotional tones and things. And we sat down for a couple of days, and I... So I've sketched out a few ideas, um, which I loved that challenge. And I thought I was very excited. And then they backed out of the whole thing and decided not to pursue it. But, and this was a number of years ago now that I wouldn't be surprised if somebody is doing this because it's not impossible, but it has to be really, really well designed. Um, but it's, that was sort of exciting to me. Sort of, mm -hmm. uh, Interesting. Well, we just found out about 20 minutes ago that it's happening. No, and, no, seriously, Joel, if I'm, am I correct? And he told me about a plug. I don't know if it's a plug-in or a piece of software. Was it Dream? Uh, Dear, Dear. Dear VR. VR. Was this, this is a technology? And it's Where it's an immersive. It's it's a it's a VR reality mm -hmm. where you compose. So oh. you, you literally, if I'm understanding correctly, so I don't know if we're digressing, but, or going forward, I don't know which, but you can move the oboe around. And he was saying literally in a, in a immersive environment or a 3D environment as the composer, kind of, I think what you were saying. So he's, well, no, this was know, actually a little more is, just, you know, if you, if you, you're fighting the dragon and, and you're losing, the music is changing. Okay. You're fighting dragon and, and you're winning. The music is now getting more and more okay. victorious. So, so maybe, it, it, can, oh, I see. it can respond. So the music actually to responds to emotionally changing. to what you okay. are achieving in the game. So he was talking about a tool that might be able, might develop, yeah. oh, work with that, that or do something yeah. in that way. Yeah. But I mean, I understand what you're saying. Well, That's one of the things you're talking about too uh, with video games, you know, <clears throat> with TV and with well, I guess with Netflix too. You know, we've got 
a lot of people watching stuff on their iPads and iPhones now. And I mean, I'm doing, I'm doing that. I'm watching on earbuds. I'll watch TV shows and films now. You know, we still more or less mix as if we're mixing a film, you know, for whatever we do. If it is a film, obviously, or a TV show or a video game or whatever, we, we mix it for more or less the highest common denominator. And it can trickle down from there as to, as to how people decide to listen to it, you know, whether it be on headphones or what. But we're more or less just going to mix it in 5.1 or 7.1 or whatever it is and mix it as if we're listening to it in a theater fairly loud. And if we like it, then that's great. But we're not going to go around necessarily and listen to it on earbuds and do all that because that's you can't you can't catch every single variable that you know, someone could be listening on just the left speaker or just the, you know, the right earbud or whatever it is. And, you know, that's kind of up to them if they want to be silly like that and not, you know, listen to it the way they should, you know. So anyway, that's, that's, that's how I look at it anyway. Yeah. I agree. I, 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 I just feel we should mix it for the best possible. And you're going to cover 99% of, by doing that, you know, in a great speaker system, you're going to hear enough that, that it's always going to translate downward Unless someone is has a busted headphone or is like my daughter wanders around with one headphone, I could kill her. Yeah. The one headphone thing is definitely not rad. I don't know why. No one's hearing the cellos. Is that? Only viol violins are too loud. Well, that's because you don't have your right that's speaker on. <laughs> right headphone is off. Great, great answers. Thank you so much. Hi, um, my name is Rene Garza. I'm a a sound designer, music composer, and I have a question. Um, when composing for, for TV, how often, I mean, you mentioned that you, um, you have a good communication with the sound designer. How often do you do that in, in TV? And do you get a chance also to listen to the final mix or have a feedback or conversation with the re-recording mixer? Well, I think Jason set the stage with the re-recording mixers and sort of keeps a line there. In terms of the sound des design, um, just an initial face-to-face -face discussion at the very beginning of the show, but more or less just keeping my eye open on the spotting of each show for potential problems and going right to the post-production supervisor because usually we only have like a couple hours to spot this thing and s solve all those problems in that, <laughs> that period of time. You know? Yeah. yeah, well, it's interesting, too, because with TV, you know, they have to keep things now at this sort of constant. They're trying to get down to this sort of constant level of, of volume so that, you know, between commercials and TV, you're not freaking out. And, um, yeah, so one of the issues we had, uh, this because this happened probably, at, I don't know, maybe second or third season of Once Upon a Time, so like five years ago or something like that where we felt like the music was just too quiet. And then, of course, when the commercials came on, it was like a whole other story. And we were trying to figure out how we can sort out getting a happy medium with all that. And so I guess one of the things is that, um, you know, sometimes with film, we'll mix really dynamically. And, and knowing that we've got a really wide range of headroom that we can work with in a movie because things are generally being played pretty loud overall. Um, but that in TV, you might be listening overall much quieter um, and, and might not hear the music overall unless it's just like a moment where it's a, it's a 
a cut to the commercial or a tail out as we call it or whatever. And those are the only things you're hearing. So we'll mix it maybe a little bit different or maybe even write it differently, but so that you're, you're hearing it a little more evenly throughout the show so that it isn't just suddenly we hear this dun, 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 and that's all you hear, you know, cause that's, I don't usually, you know, like on an individual level, I like to compress things, but on a global level, I try and keep that really to the job of faders and, and the writing, you know? Um, so there, there is not usually for me, I'm not clamping things down as a whole to say, you know, when we get to this ceiling, we're just totally limiting it. It's more of a, how it's being written and how it's being, you know, carved out as a mix to try and make it work the whole time and, and be heard. Yeah. We, we compress naturally. We just, there's not that many triple P's and triple fortes. It's, you know, mezzo pianos and triple fortes. <laughs> Just because if it gets too soft, it won't survive the, the two-day dub process. They Correct. won't take the time to dig it out and make sure you hear it. Right. Uh, so I, I had a question about um, like when you first were working on Once Upon a Time. Like, uh, was there any pushback in terms of them wanting to just do like a MIDI mock-up score and not like have to spend all the, the extra money on the musicians? And have you ever thought that... like? Uh, maybe not making mock-ups so good so that you're you're necessitating having a real orchestra? I, I, I ever wonder if that ever factors into things. Well, Don Solaire's championed orchestra from the very beginning and the two shows creators championed orchestra from the beginning. And I'm sure some attorney somewhere said, do we really have to have orchestra? And enough people said, yes, we really do have to have orchestra, that it's stuck and we're in our seventh year and we still have orchestra. So I, I, it really is ABC's creative decision to keep that going and I think the show I think the show really benefits from it um, I probably wouldn't do it if they told me to do it in the box I would probably politely resign because I just well quite honestly it'd be too hard it actually. would be it would be so much work I mean it would just be I don't see how you we could keep the quality anywhere near what it is on the timetable we would have you know in terms of demos um, demos demos are a composer's lifeline if your demos don't kill, you're, you're probably not working because that's, that's how people rate your music, rate you, you know, decide whether you're good or bad and whether you're, you're the right guy for the job. So the demos just, it, it would never serve any purpose to dumb down the demos. It would only serve to make them great. But there's things that you'll never get out of samples, you know, like even choir stuff, like, that choir stuff at the end of that cue we were just playing back. I mean, there's great samples and they really do sound, but when you start getting lyrical and you start doing things where you, you know, you're writing lines and you're writing melodies and you're trying to get some real emotion out of something, a lot of the time is not always, but a lot of the time the sample isn't going to go the distance for that. And depending on what the project is, you know, the directors and producers will usually agree, hopefully, that that's, that that's the case and they need to go the distance and, and record it. So I guess, again, that's sort of a conversation. The crucial thing is that I need to know when I write because if I'm writing for samples, I write very differently. If I'm writing for real instruments, I write for what the instrument can do. If I'm writing for samples, I write for what the sample can do. And it's a lot of the time it's very, very different. You know, especially in you know certain type of string writing, certainly with choirs, certainly with with upper brass, you know, certain woodwinds, you know, just trumpet, trumpet. <laughs> 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 I'm 
Uh, one more fast. Okay. <laughs> so I really had I recently had a, a situation where I scored a, a horror film, and uh, the uh, engineer I work with, I, I took out most of the uh, plugin I use, and uh, I found her uh, spending more time re trying to recreate what I had, uh, then uh, rather than adding what she can add. So what's your strat uh, strategy on this? <laughs> yeah. I... <laughs> I have a very simple um, point of view on this. Why do I need to pay someone of extraordinary talent to take all this time to make it sound like I've already spent hours and hours making it sound? I mean, Jason's very kind and he says I'm a good engineer. I am a pretty good engineer for making demos. I don't have the patience to do final engineering. I just don't have the patience. But I can get my demos. And if I'm using certain plugins, they stay. They stay in there. Tyler, the go-between, will make certain decisions of whether they should be married to the track. In other words, if it's a delay line, he'll sometimes print the delay line separately. So Jason has the option then of putting the delay into the surrounds or, or tweaking the delay, making it better. But he will always have every single element that I have slaved over to get that vibe, that, to get that sound. He will always have all of that because I don't want him wasting his time doing what I've already done. The, the mix really should be an extension of the writing. Mix shouldn't be getting back to where the writing was because then that's a huge, like you're saying, it's a huge waste of time and it's frustrating because you're like, well, that, okay, I'm basically telling you what to do. Again, I've already done this. I've already spent weeks doing this. So the, be the best way to do it is really, for the, I tend to ask people to just give me whatever it is. It's logic, nuendo, whatever you write in. If you have plugins on stuff and you're doing a lot of really cool stuff, you should just keep it all in there and you give it to me or whoever and you say, take it from there. Now you got to put it in 5.1. We got to do a bunch of other things anyway. So why spend all the time getting back to where you were in your writing when we have a whole, we have a whole other checklist of things we got to do now? Before we can even start, we've got to get back to where your mix was. So I think as a starting point, that's how we always do it. You know, if he's got distortion on something, delay lines, whatever, he usually keep all that stuff. The other thing that we do sometimes, but not usually, is a lot of the time his stuff will keep in stereo. And, you know, like Hans and some of those guys do stuff in quad or 5.1 for samples. And, and I think it's great to do that on certain things, but... <clears throat> Not always, you know, I think actually a lot of stuff sounds really great and stereo gives you a little more flexibility sometimes in terms of what to do with it and how to integrate it with, you know, the live orchestra and stuff like that. But I would say overall, it's great to just start where you left off and only, you know, take it from there, take it higher if you can, you know, rather than take it to a mixer with nothing on it. And then you got to spend two weeks just getting it back to where you add it, you know, not super fun. <laughs> Thank you so much, um, Mark and Jason. You've been fantastic. Please. Thank you, guys. Thank you.